Welcome to our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Sarah Hunter and I'm our Connections Associate here at Rolling Hills. As we continue exploring Ephesians 6, we'll be hearing from Kelly Minter and learning about the armor of God and how we can use it in our daily lives. Our prayer is that this series will equip you with the tools you need to face your daily spiritual battles. Now let's hear from Kelly. Well, good morning, church family, and all of you that are here, all of you who are watching online, and those of you who might just be a guest, we are so thankful that you're here today and so glad that you are joining us in the middle of this Armor of God series. Uh, If you live in the area, or actually there are lots of parts of the country that got a lot of snow this time, so hopefully you really enjoyed that and were able to get a little sledding in, some time off. It was Interesting because when that first couple days that snow was really coming down and it was so cozy and I thought, oh, isn't this awesome? We just kind of get to stay hunkered down. We can't go anywhere and we're going to make dinner with just a couple people inside. And then I realized that that's actually how I've been living my entire life every single day for a whole year. So it's like, oh, Right, so this is, it kind of lost its sparkle for me, but at least there was sledding in the whole, in the whole mix. But we're so glad that you're here, and we, I, I wanna go ahead and just jump into our text. We're gonna be in Ephesians chapter six, verses 16 and 17, just two verses today, but very, very dense with a lot of meaning and a lot of relevancy for our lives. I don't know if you're anything like me, but I grew up in the church and hearing a lot about the armor of God. And it was always kind of this distant metaphor for me a little bit because I didn't grow up with spears and shields and I didn't dress up. I wasn't even really into the Wonder Woman thing. And so it was just kind of this clunky metaphor for me or clunky is not the right word. Paul wouldn't like that. It was distant for me. It was distant for me. But as I began to really study it and I began to go back to the the time of Paul's life and the culture and the history of the day, some things began to click for me in a new way. And so I'm really thankful that I was able to study and teach on this. Uh, First of all, we know that the armor that Paul is talking about, he would have had a really good idea of what this armor looked like based on the Roman soldiers of the day because that whole area of Palestine and the greater area around there was ruled by Rome. Paul was also in prison a great deal and wrote a lot of his letters from prison. And I loved what William Barclay, a great uh, theologian, said that it's very possible that at times Paul was actually chained to one of these soldiers who was looking after him. And so Paul would have had a lot of time, whether he was chained to the soldier or not, he would have seen these soldiers guarding him and he would have had a lot of time to reflect and ponder the armor of the soldier. I thought that was really cool and really interesting because Paul would have been very well acquainted with all of the armor of the Roman soldier because this is what was around in their day and it was also what, who was guarding him in prison. And I wonder if Paul in that prison was one day studying a Roman centurion's uh, armor and thought, we got that. We got that infinitely speaking in the heavenly realms because Paul even tells us, he says, we are not fighting a battle against flesh and blood, but we are fighting a spiritual battle a spiritual battle. And so I wonder if as Paul was looking at the armor and studying the armor of the Roman soldier in his cell, if he thought back to Isaiah chapter 59 and other parts of Isaiah where God himself is clothed in this particular armor. Isaiah 59 
The prophet tells us that Yahweh comes with a breast of righteousness or breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me and through a lot of these scholars, I wish I had seen this before, that this is not just the armor of God, but the armor of God is the armor that God wears. That's number one for us today. The armor of God is the armor that God himself actually wears It is his armor that he is giving to us to take up. And that is so cool. This is not a knockoff thing. I think about these sports, uh, these athletes that it's become this thing, I guess, to trade jerseys after games and do these jersey swaps, which is really kind of the most disgusting thing ever because they're sweaty and gross and then they, they do a jersey swap. But here's the thing. I mean, if you're Derrick Henry, you don't want, you're not gonna go to Dick's Sporting Goods and buy a Brady jersey. You want the jersey that Tom Brady wears. You want the actual thing. There's something cool about this player actually wears this. I want that one. And that is the armor of God here that Paul is describing. It's the, not just the armor of God, it's the armor that God wears that he is given, giving to us. Well, the first thing that Paul tells us is he says, in every situation, this is after the sandals of the gospel of peace and the the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, he says, in every situation or in all circumstances, so in everything, this is very relevant for us, he says, I want you to take up the shield of faith which extinguishes all the fiery darts of the enemy. Now again, I didn't have a great context for what a shield of faith looked like. But going back and studying what that shield of faith, every scholar said that it was a big shield that Paul is describing, that it's about four feet tall, about two and a half feet wide, and you would be able to get almost your entire, really your whole body behind this shield. That's a big, that's a big shield, and it was sort of shaped like a door. The other cool thing about these shields is that what allowed them to extinguish the fiery dart is that some of them would be stretched in leather. Some scholars said that they would actually dip their shields in water. And so when the enemy would launch this this arrow, the arrow, the tip of the arrow would be dipped in pitch and it would be set on fire and they would launch it um, toward the enemy. And so Paul was saying, take up that shield of faith because when that fiery dart hits, This particular shield of faith can extinguish that fiery dart. And I began to think, okay, Lord, how, practically speaking, how does the shield of faith extinguish all the fiery darts of the enemy? I I want you to think of anything that you are going through right now, anything that you know is a direct attack of the enemy, anything that's going on in your life right now, And I want you to think about what taking up the shield of faith would actually look like in that situation because we have to take it up. We have to take it up and we have to get behind it. I began to think of, just as I was journaling, sitting with my Bible and thinking about ways that the shield of faith extinguishes the fiery dart of the enemy, I came up with a list. We're not gonna spend a ton of time on this list, but it's in, your, um, it's in your worship guide. It's on the screen, and I just wanna go through some of these. But faith in Jesus declares we are forgiven. That extinguishes the fiery dart of condemnation. So if you came in here today feeling shame, feeling guilt, feeling condemned, 
I want you to take up the shield of faith that says that Jesus Christ, through his death and his resurrection, has forgiven you. You are clean. You are not condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Faith in Jesus declares our Father provides for our needs. We see that in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. That extinguishes the fiery dart of worry. How many of us over this past year have worried about so many different things? God the Father promises that he will meet our every need. It doesn't always look like we think it's going to, but he will do it. We take up that shield of faith. We get behind it, and it takes out the fiery dart of worry. Faith in Jesus declares that we have an enduring hope, and it extinguishes the fiery dart of despair. How, I just want to tell you today that you do not have to be hopeless Jesus Christ brings life and he brings hope and there's no reason that we have to live in despair. We see faith in Jesus declares he will never forsake us. That extinguishes the fiery dart of abandonment. One of the greatest promises throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is that he will be with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. So when the enemy sends his dart your way that says that you will be abandoned, you will be left alone, you can pull up that shield of faith and declare that that is not true. That is not reality. Faith in Jesus declares we're unconditionally loved. That extinguishes the fiery dart of rejection. I love this. There is absolutely no reason for anybody in the family of God to experience rejection. It happens in life, it happens in different times, but the family of God is to welcome all people, all people who will come to Jesus Christ. So rejection is out. Faith in Jesus declares our God is sovereign and that extinguishes the fiery dart of it's all up to me. I can't tell you how many times this last year we've, we, I mean the word unprecedented, it's just unprecedented. Every time you turn around, something unprecedented has happened. and. There is this recurring feeling of the weight of the world being on our shoulders. And we think, oh my goodness, it's all up to me. But then when we get into scripture, we realize, no, no, God is sovereign. We heard Dana talk about that earlier. He's sovereign, he's in control. We don't have to have it all be up to me. This is not in your worship guide, but it's another one that I thought of as I was just awake last night thinking about today. And I was realizing that faith in Jesus declares that he will make a way of escape and temptation. That takes out the fiery dart of giving into sin. I know that I've, I've been there. I think some of us might be there today. We just think we ha that sin is our only option because we're just addicted or just too in too far. No, God has promised to make a way of escape in temptation as so we pull up that shield. This is number two for us today, taking up the shield of faith. Taking up the shield of faith is entrusting every area of our lives to the promises of God in Christ Jesus. Why do, I, why do I say that taking up the shield of faith is entrusting every area of our lives to the promises of God in Christ Jesus? Because when you take up that shield of faith, it's not a little dinky shield that you're kind of like, you're doing this. You get behind the shield. You get your entire body behind that shield. Everything, you don't have a pinky out there because you'd hate to lose a pinky in war, right? You don't have a foot out. You don't have any area that you have not submitted or entrusted to the promises of God, everything. And I think what happens is there are certain areas that we trust the Lord in, but there are certain areas that we don't. And we end up, we end up you kind of see certain pieces sticking out. The whole thing is that we need to be behind the armor. 
Another cool thing about these shields of faith is that back in those days, the shields could connect to other shields. And so we also get a communal idea here that in warfare or in battle, people would connect their shields one next to the other and a whole bunch of people could get behind this entire wall of safety. Such a cool picture. You might be struggling in your faith right now. I would say get with the body of Christ. I was so happy this morning. I mean, once I got past my alarm going off and scraping ice off my car and all of that. Once I got here, I was so happy because I've been by myself for so long and it was just so great to just see people and to fellowship with people and to connect up our shields of faith together to feel like we are not alone. Did you notice that Paul says that all the fiery darts, all the fiery darts can be extinguished by the shield of faith? There is not one single dart that the enemy has that is more powerful than the shield of faith. He does not own one that can penetrate the shield of faith. It's awesome. But how are we gonna take up this shield of faith? Well, we're gonna take it up by knowing the promises of God. It's not this ethereal thing. It's a tangible thing that we do. We take up the shield of faith by declaring what God said is true and getting behind that and entrusting our lives to that. But how do we do that? Well, in Romans chapter 10, it says that faith comes by hearing and hearing comes from the word of God. So if we're gonna have faith, we're gonna have to hear it. And if we're gonna hear it, we're gonna have to read about it in the word. And we'll get to that in just a few minutes, but that is how we are gonna have a strong faith. After this, after Paul says to take up in every situation, to take up the shield of faith, in verse 17, he says, take the helmet of salvation. Now the helmet of, of salvation, the helmet in those days, if a Roman soldier was wearing this helmet, it would be a brass helmet, very strong, would cover obviously the head, would cover the ears and some of the cheeks, and so you get this real protection. And obviously the helmet is one of the most important forms of defense that a person can have because your head is kind of everything. It's why when our kids or our nieces and nephews are out riding their bike or whatever, we want them to wear a helmet because if they fall and they hurt their head, that affects everything, that it changes everything. And so the helmet is very important. Um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter five, Paul actually says, he details this out a little bit more for us. He says, put on the helmet of the hope of your salvation. So we see that this helmet is a strong, sure protection for our minds. It will dictate and enlighten everything that we do, the hope of our salvation. Now we use the word hope sort of like wish, like we wish for something. So we might say, well, I, I wish or I hope that it snows and it doesn't sleet, or I hope that I can go on this vacation in the fall. I hope the vaccine works. Basically what we're saying is we want something to be true. It might be true, but it might not be true, but we want it to be. But that is not the kind of hope of salvation that Paul is talking about. He is talking about a rock-solid, foundational hope that is guaranteed. It's an absolute. It is going to happen. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. You are saved. Your eternity is secure. But it's not just about the future. It's not just salvation. is not just out of hell and into heaven, although that's a significant part. But salvation is we've been saved from sin. We've been saved from bondage. We've been saved from despair. We have life here and now. 
I, but I was wrestling this week. I was telling Pastor Jeff, I was just wrestling with what it actually looks like to wear the helmet of salvation because we're not wearing the helmet that saves us. Jesus saves us, says it earlier in Ephesians chapter two, we are saved by grace through faith. Jesus Christ saves us. We wear the helmet of salvation because we are saved. But I was still thinking, what does that look like in my daily life? What does that look like in reality? And I remembered this thing that happened a couple months ago. It was the goofiest thing that happened. It was actually on a Sunday morning. I had about an hour before I had to be at church. I'm up at the Nashville campus. And I'm just having this relaxing time. I've got my coffee. And all of a sudden, I hear this really, really loud just crash. And at first, I thought that a transformer had blown and I, but, but all my electricity was on, so, but it was that loud. And, and then I thought, was that a gunshot? I mean, because that, that has happened in my neighborhood. And so I thought, well, and I looked out the window. My neighbor is a police officer, which is so handy. And so I'm looking to see if he's out there, nothing. And I just think, well, okay, I, I, don't know what, I don't know what that was. So I get my coffee. I move to the front room. I'm sitting on my couch. I've got this window right here. I'm looking out the window. I'm having just this nice Sabbath moment. And all of a sudden, I realize that there's kind of this weird, slimy, just kind of like guts, honestly, on my window. I thought, I don't remember that being there. And so I look up, and there's a window box right here. And I look up, and there is a bird, like this big, that has hit my window. And all of a sudden, I realized, oh my goodness, that's what's happened. This thing has, I mean, this thing smacked it. It was so loud. And it's shaking, and it's trying to breathe, and its head's down. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what do I do? And then it looks up at me through the window. Help me. Help me. And I'm, I'm like, I don't know how to help you. And so what do I do? I Google this. And let me tell you. I am not the first person to Google, what do you do if a bird hits your window? There are millions of us. I am in a whole new club. And there are lots of people that actually care deeply, deeply about what to do when a bird hits a window. And in fact, they care so much that there was actually one site that was trying to convince me that I needed to change out all my windows so that my windows would be more prominent to the birds that would signal this is a window and I'm like, listen, I care, but I do not care $20,000 worth. I am not changing my windows out. Well, it says that what you need to do, you need to go out there, you need to throw a little blanket over it, you need to put it in a box. So I thought, okay, I'm here for this. I am here for this. I go, I get a box. Will you believe it? I open up my closet, there's a cardboard box. It is a Rolling Hills for the Kingdom box. <laughs> I'm like, this bird hit the right place. He is, I'm gonna put him in the For the Kingdom box. I'm gonna put him in my house for two hours while I go to church and pray over him. And then I'm gonna come back. And by the way, just as a tip, you can only keep it in your house for two hours because then you're like harboring wildlife inside and that is no. So I go out to get this bird. I, I get really close to throw the thing on it and it jumps up on the end and then off it goes. It was fine. He was a little stunned. He left some guts on my window, but he made it. And so afterwards, I was thinking, okay, that's gonna show up. That's gonna be an illustration. I just don't know how, I don't know when. And I've tried to shove that story into a lot of messages recently, and you know what? No, it wasn't the right time. 
But all of a sudden, I realized last night, and I really, you could just take this home with you, but I realized last night as I was thinking this through, I remembered something that I read. It was the bird window people. And they said that what happens is why a bird hits a window, because I don't know if you've ever thought about it, it is a little weird. Why do they fly into our windows? It's because they don't see a window. They see the reflection of the sky and the clouds and the trees, and all they see is clear, blue, safe, flying sky. They do not see a fixed object that will stun them at best and make them vulnerable to prey or kill them. And I began to realize that the helmet of salvation allows us to see things as they actually are, as God sees them. And when we are saved and we do not have on the helmet of salvation, we see as the world sees. And what looks like free, clear flying is actually a distortion. It is not the real thing. It is an, intimidate, it is an uh, imitation. And I thought that, I think, I think that that is what Paul is getting at here because earlier in Ephesians, he talks about the eyes of our heart having understanding. That's the mind. He talks about our mind being renewed in the spirit. In Philippians, he talks about having the mind of Christ. And this world is going to offer us a lot of what looks good and what looks right, but it is not actually the real thing. It is the world and culture is not telling us how things actually are. And to have the mind of Christ, we not only see how things will be in the future, but we see how things actually are in real life. I want to always have on the helmet of salvation in every circumstances, Paul says, in every situation, because I want to see what God sees. I want, to, I want to know the truth, and I want to have the mind of Christ and that wisdom. Wearing the helmet of salvation is living fully in light of our present and future redemption. We have been given the end of the story. As believers, we know the beginning of the story, we know that we're somewhere in the middle of the story. There is so much that God has given us, so much wisdom that we understand that shows us life. We wanna have that helmet of salvation. And I only just tell you, we're just gonna throw this into, oh my goodness, be so careful that you have the helmet of salvation on when you're scrolling through social media, when you're listening to podcasts, when you're watching television, when you're looking at documentaries, when you're reading, please have the helmet of salvation and let that filter through the mind of Christ because otherwise we are gonna be so far off course. Paul tells us to take the shield of faith which extinguishes every fiery dart of the enemy to take on, put on the helmet of salvation and then he says, and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. This is the only weapon that Paul talks about that is offensive. Pretty much everything else we've looked at has been defensive. This is offensive. It can be defensive as well, but it's offensive. And the, the sword that, that Paul talks about here is actually a small, uh, a small hand sword. I, I, don't, I guess I just always pictured like this big spear kind of, kind of sword, like this kind of thing. But this was a much more precise type of weapon that Paul is alluding to here. Very sharp. It was something that would be used oftentimes in a more up-close and 
personal type of battle. And so I began to think about that and I thought, I'm so glad, I'm so glad that Paul actually detailed exactly what the sword of the spirit is, that it is the word of God because he doesn't do that with any of the other um, armor. There's kind of this metaphor we're sort of left to, to kind of tr- try to figure out exactly what he's talking about based on the entire counsel of God. But this he says, the sword of the spirit is actually the word of God. And we're probably not supposed to have favorites. We're probably not supposed to have a favorite uh, weapons of, of the armor of God. But my favorite is the word of God. I'm so excited. As a Bible teacher, this excites me so much. I want to be able to use this sword, but not just as a way to go on the offensive in a sense of, 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 of hurting people. Think about this. When we go after, we're going after pride. We're going after deception. We're going after things that, that, that kill us and that kill other people. And so we get to, we get to do damage to those things, to the, to the enemy, but it is for life. I think about in Isaiah where Paul's pulling so much of this from that God's word is like a sword. But he also says that his word sustains the weary. Isn't that so good to be able to cut through all the things that wear us down and weigh us down? It sustains the weary. Psalm uh, 107 verse 20 says that he sent forth his word and he healed them. You guys, the word is so, so powerful and it is relevant for every single circumstance, every situation that we find ourselves in. But what's interesting here is that when Paul says, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, he is actually using the Greek word rhema. Now there are two words for the word word, if that's not confusing, two words for the word word in the Greek that's used in the scripture. One is logos. And probably many of you all are familiar with the word logos. And it really, it really refers to the whole counsel of God. The law of Moses, the prophets, all that God did. We see in John 1 that Jesus Christ um, was made, who became flesh. He became the word, the logos. He is the fulfillment of the entire word. So that's logos. But rhema tends to show up in a more personal way, in a more circumstantially specific way, it's, it seems to be more of that sharp, small hand sword. And it is tech, it's typically the spoken word, the spoken word of God. I thought, I just don't know if there's a better example of this than in Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus has been 40 days in the wilderness. Think about this, 40 days in the wilderness. But remember, he was led there by the Holy Spirit, which is really important because this is the sword of the Spirit. And Satan comes to him when he's tired, when he's hungry. And he says, listen, if you're the son of God, why don't you just turn those stones into bread? And what does Jesus say? Jesus quotes scripture. I wish we could have seen this like in an actual, like I wish we could have seen the metaphor of this where Jesus just takes out that hand sword and is like, listen here, Satan. And says, man and woman, humanity, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that word that Jesus uses is rhema. 
Now, rhema will always be based in logos. It will always come from the whole counsel of God. But it was for a very specific situation. Jesus could have pulled anything, but he pulls that passage and he uses his sword against the enemy. But then it's fascinating. Satan catches on and he goes, oh, okay, well, great. You're going to use scripture as, uh, as, the, as the word and as your sword. Well, then I'm going to use scripture. And then Satan goes back and he quotes Psalm 91 and says, hey, listen, it says that the angels will help you, that their hands will support you. So why don't you just cast yourself off this mountain? Do you see what's happening? Jesus and Satan are going God's word for God's word. And that blew my mind. I remember I was in high school at the time. I don't remember what I was going through, but I remember I was in scripture and there were things in scripture that were actually, I don't know that I was rightly interpreting it and it was, it was discouraging me. It was, it was a burden on me. And I, I couldn't fully understand, but I remember like it was, it was painful to open up the word of God and not in the right way, not in a convicting way. It was burdensome to me. And I got to Matthew chapter four at some point and I thought, oh my goodness, I think the enemy is actually using God's good word against me. And that's where the council of believers is so good. That's where we go and we link up our shield of faith together and we get together in groups. We help uh, one another rightly divide the word of God. But I, all of a sudden I realized Satan can use the word of God, but that doesn't mean that he's using it in the right way. It doesn't mean that it's the powerful rhema. And so if we are going to take up that sword, we have to do it in the way that Jesus did. We have to know the whole, well, we're not, we're not gonna know the whole counsel, but we need to know as much of the counsel as we possibly can. We need to really understand the word, but we also need to know when and how to use that sword because it's powerful and used in the wrong way, it can do damage. This is number four for us. Using the sword of the spirit is speaking God's truth at the right time with the right heart in the power of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Satan was speaking God's truth, but he was not speaking it with the right heart. He was not speaking it under the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you're like me in this, but I sometimes am so good at speaking God's truth at the wrong time. Anybody? Please do not hang me out here. I, I, where you come in and you're in an argument or somebody's done something, and I mean, you have got a verse and you are gonna pull that sword out, but it's the wrong time. Again, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he talks about don't cast your pearl before swine. In other words, don't give someone something that they're not looking for, that they don't want. Um, there's a time and a place. Sometimes it's the wrong time. What about we're speaking God's truth at the right time, but we don't have the right heart? I remember something this past summer, pretty significant situation, and we were going into this meeting, and, and I, could, I could see this situation. Like, I really, in my heart of hearts, I felt like I could see it. I could see it clearly. I had my helmet of salvation on. Uh, I, I had verses, I could, see te I could see it. And I was ready to go in there and into that meeting and get some work done with my sword. And the Holy Spirit just so clearly was like, Kelly, you are not going into that meeting until you and I take a walk. So I took a walk with the Lord for about an hour before that meeting. 
and I had to get my heart right. It's not about me. It's about the other person. It's not about my glory. It's about their well-being. It's not about me being right. It's about them being helped. It's about God's truth, not my truth. And so if we're going to use the sword well, it's not just about biblical knowledge. It's using it at the right time, with the right heart, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we teach that way, and we speak that way, and we encourage that way, and we're under the power of the Spirit, there's nothing like it. I think, I hope that you've experienced that. I hope that you've experienced that where all of a sudden someone says something to you, they, they, they uh, give the word and all of a sudden, boom. You know, the gospel, a lot of scholars believe that when Paul says to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, a lot of scholars believe that he's talking about the gospel message. I would certainly say that that's part of it. My mom gives a testimony. I love this. I love when she shares it. She got saved, came to know Jesus Christ in high school which just reminds me of how important what's going on with our students are every single Sunday, all midweek, it's so important. But she got saved at a youth camp. And she said, she always tells it the same. She goes, Kelly, I remember it like it was yesterday. The youth pastor got up, he gave the gospel. He said that I was forgiven, that because Jesus had died on the cross, because he had risen from the dead, he was, I had been made righteous. And she said, a, she said my head exploded. It was a rhema word. It was the sword just piercing through. And she said, literally, my head exploded. My dad always says, Kay, your head did not explode. And she goes, Mike, my head exploded when I heard the gospel. It's a really fun parental dynamic that goes back and forth. But she's saying, it was like this light bulb. When I, this, the rhema hit her, and it was powerful. And she came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. If we can know this word, if we can know the gospel, if we can know his truth, and if we can use that sword under the power of the Holy Spirit, there's just no telling what good we can do, what life we can bring forth. Um, Church, as I think about the armor of God today, my prayer for us, and as I was praying, as I went down here, is I just don't want us to have more knowledge. It's not gonna do a whole lot of good if we just know a little bit more about the shield of faith or know that it was four feet by two feet. Um, it's not gonna do a lot of good if, if we know that the helmet of salvation is sitting there at our disposal, but we don't actually use it. We don't actually put it on. We don't actually begin to think the thoughts of Christ and have the mind of God. It's not gonna do us a whole lot of good if we don't have any Bible knowledge at all or if we have Bible knowledge, but we are not under the governance of the Holy Spirit. Our faith is predicated on this word. Our minds are predicated on the word. Our offense in this life is predicated on this word. We need to know it. And if you get into scripture and it's confusing for you, join a Bible study. We have got them here. I love getting to teach God's word because it changes us. And it is the power, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Would you pray with me today? Lord, we don't wanna just know. We don't wanna just know the word of God. But we want it in us. We wanna be changed by it. We want to be Holy Spirit inspired in every situation. God, thank you for the way that 
that, that, that Pastor Jeff and our leaders and our staff and our church Lord, leads in this way that we, we believe we have faith in Jesus Christ and in his promises. We wanna have the mind of Christ. We wanna speak truth. Lord, thank you for the life that we have here. And I pray, Lord, for anyone who is lonely or feels like they're on the outside, Lord, would you let them know that they are welcome. Even if they don't have their own shield of faith yet, they can duck behind ours for a time as they learn about who you are until they can take up their own shield of faith. Thank you for your body. Thank you that we are not meant to do this alone. And thank you that you give us the very armor that you yourself wear. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about what's going on in the life of Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app or visit our website at rollinghills.church. From there, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay up to date on what's happening and ways you can connect. We're thankful for you.